strength, and sex. They are powerful forces in nature, and still today, they can be worshipped as gods. As our study leader, Dave Wordson, picks up the redemptive story in Acts chapter 19, verses 20 through 40, it's the episode of the fertility goddess versus Jesus Christ, and Paul almost gets himself killed in a riot. You all are built, and I'm built, to express devotion to someone. We're built for reverence. We're built to revere someone. We're also built to shout up, yay, 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 you're all built for that. Why do you do that? Because you're made in God's image and you're built for devotion. You're built for reverence. You're built to give praise to someone. In the ancient world, they used those ingredients. You're built to give that praise. You're built to give that adoration. You're built to give that a devotion. They used it in the ancient world to mold cities. And then the Roman Empire used it to mold the whole devotion to the emperor. In the city of Ephesus, for example, we're not even sure when it happened, but how many of you on the news have ever seen those pictures of meteors entering the atmosphere? Anybody ever seen those? Recently, you know, one of them, I think in Russia, there was a blazing meteor. And now with everybody with their phones, they just take a picture of it so that we didn't usually see that. But now... Often it happens when a meteor comes and hits the atmosphere and it's that blazing light. Then they go and look for where that meteor lands. Evidently, one of those meteors came and landed in what's now western Turkey on the coast near the city of Ephesus. And you can imagine there's a blazing light in the sky and then you find this great big rock. And then it's kind of like abstract art. The meteor looks kind of like some kind of a woman. You start worshiping that. And that's what happened in Ephesus way back even before the Romans conquered the area that's now Turkey, what was known in the ancient world as Asia Minor. This meteor had crashed and an early primitive temple was built in the city of Ephesus. By the time of the first century that we're studying the book of Acts, one of the gigantic, beautiful seven wonders of the world was built in Ephesus. And they used this meteor in their worship. They also worshiped a god that's called Artemis. And Artemis combined the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the sister of Apollo, Diana, was what the Romans called her. And down in Egypt, for example, they worshipped a god named Isis, and she was very similar, a fertility goddess. If you studied your Old Testament at all, the children of Israel throughout their whole history, before the Lord sent them into captivity, they worshipped the goddess Asherah. And Shira was the goddess that was the partner and sister and fertility partner with Baal or Baal that you've all studied about when you have Elijah, for example, attacking the prophets of Baal and calling fire down from heaven. Anybody remember those stories at all? Okay, it sounds like ancient history, doesn't it? But sex and power, because the fertility goddesses were often not just the goddess of sex, they're often the goddess of, of power and military might. For example, in Ephesus, Diana is the great huntress. She's not just a fertility goddess that exemplifies fertility and sex. She also represents the hunter, the huntress that goes out and has tremendous power over the enemy. So you got a great combination. If you combine violence and sex, you got a crowd. You say, well, I don't believe that at all anymore, okay? Over this week, in fact, right now, as I'm speaking, there are thousands of people all over the United States that are driving. They've had their cup of coffee. They're driving. They're going to go to 
Cowboy Stadium. And they're going to have great big parties all over. They're going to have great big parties in their parking lot. They're going to drink tons of beer. And then they're going to go into the stadium, and then they're going to drink a lot more beer. And they're going to have their binoculars, and they're going to be watching great big 245-pound linebackers that are built like mountains, and they're going to crash into running backs that are about 225, and they're going to watch those collisions. And there's going to be tremendous power on power, okay? But as they're doing it, in years past when I've gotten some of the games, I noticed the guys, are, they're using those binoculars to get up close and personal. But all you need to do is have a beautiful woman wiggle her hips a little bit. And I've watched guys, and the binoculars are not on the linebackers. They're on the cheerleader. You see, those are parable combinations. And you think, well, we don't have any of this idolatry and stuff. I want to share something with you. I think the Apostle Paul would not have been against sports. He wouldn't have been against going to stadiums and watching. You say, how do you know that? Because the Apostle Paul loved to use boxing. He loves to use wrestling. He loved to use running and track, which were the major games of the Olympics, which in the Roman Greek world of the first century, their big games were not stadium games, for example, like obviously not at Texas Stadium or Cowboy Stadium, but they were in the different cities like Corinth and Olympus and all the different places around the Roman Empire. In fact, King Herod even built a great big athletic stadium in the city of Jerusalem. So I don't think the Apostle Paul would be against sports, but if he were here today, I would think he would say, my brothers and sisters, I want you to think really carefully, what are you giving your devotion to today? I want to ask you, what are you looking forward to? What keeps you alive? Like I was in Tuscaloosa a few weeks ago, and what was driving the city of Tuscaloosa is the Crimson Tide. And all my Aggie friends, their life has crashed today. Okay? It's one thing, like I remember being a little kid when I was a West Point rooter, and when Army lost, I would cry for two days. It's one thing to be a little kid, And thinking my life depended, you know, now I don't care at all. I don't even know what Army does. And that's the way your life is going to be. Right now, all of you are really excited about something. And I'm excited about something. You're giving your devotion to something. You you pay big bucks for it. And this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to challenge us, Dr. Luke, as he tells us about an incident in Ephesus. He's going to ask you, what are you worshiping? And can what you're worshiping, what you're giving your devotion to, what you're giving your reverence to, what you believe will make you really alive, will it be enough? So I challenge you, if you're an Aggie, will Johnny football really be enough? This is serious stuff. Tons of people that I know, my unbelieving friend will say, I don't need any of this Jesus stuff. And I don't need religion. It's just a big crutch. It's a crutch that you use. And it's really not what I need. But then I'll watch them every single weekend. They pour out their devotion and they drive and they pen big bucks and man, they shout and they cheer and they feel really alive. But is it going to be enough? So the issue today, it's going to be the fertility God and the God of power versus the living Christ. We pick up our story in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul had just exercised, shown the power of Jesus to deal with demons. Remember that? We said it the last time we were together. We had some Jewish exorcists that tried to do their thing. Dr. Luke gives us a little transition, and he tells us that the Apostle Paul 
is a strategic planner. So before we get into what happened at Ephesus, Dr. Luke has a little bit of a transition, and it reminds us about why we need to stand against the idolatry, because we've got the living, resurrected Jesus who can provide true forgiveness, and we need to be strategically planning how we can bring his truth into people's life. Pick up this story in Acts chapter 19. Look at verse 21. After all this happened, that's what we studied the last time we were together, after the, the living power of Christ to be truly exercising demons took place, after they burned all the scrolls that were involved in the occult, those that had turned to Jesus turned away from all their astrology charts and all their sorcery, and they began to worship the Lord. He says, after all this happened, Paul decided he made plans to go to Jerusalem. He was going to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. That's the northern part of modern-day Greece and then down to the southern part. Then he was going to take a ship over to Jerusalem. And then he says, after I have been to Jerusalem and Achaia, after that, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers or two of his deacons. Those of you that are deacons, there's the word. The Apostle Paul had two of these young men that traveled with him and they ministered with him. They were serving the Lord with him. Two of Paul's helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he sent them to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. And Dr. Lucas set us up for the scene of the riot in Ephesus. But before we go there, I want to talk to you about the importance of strategic planning for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul is teaching us that we need to be making plans to take the gospel out. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's the base of operations in the first century for the Jewish group of believers. And that's really important. The Apostle Paul is trying to get this Jewish base where James, the half-brother of the Lord, and it's exploded. There's thousands of Jewish people that have come to know the Lord as their Savior and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So in history, I want you to be clear in your mind as you talk to people and you talk to Jewish friends, for example, Christianity started as a very powerful movement within Judaism. And what happened in church history is Gentiles forgot that, and that's produced one of the greatest problems in reaching Jewish people today. It's really important that they're saying that. So we as a body of believers need to have a great love for Jewish people. You need to be careful of the little things that rise up inside of you, those Jews They're the ones that control the Wall Street. They're the ones that are controlling Washington. They're only 2% of the American population. I can't believe how they're taking over. Anybody ever heard talk like that? Come on, have you? Have you ever done it? Don't do it. That's anti-Semiticism. That's the trick of the evil one. You're rejecting Jesus' physical people. You're rejecting a people that one day the Lord is going to turn their hearts Amen? We want to be part of bringing them to the Messiah. And when we talk like that, when we allow those dark things, and there's an irrational, very dark anti-Jewishness that's in the world, and it's writhing again, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to unite those Jews that believe in Jesus and the Messiah. And one of the things I want you to learn from this, wherever you see Jews for Jesus— And you see a group called Ariel. They're a group of believers like you that are reaching out to Jewish people. Chosen people's ministry. I have 
colleagues at Dallas Theological Seminary that are on the board of Chosen People's Ministry. They're getting ready to do a major conference in New York where they'll interact with Jewish people, trying to wrestle, just like Paul did, to help them interact and find out that Jesus is the Messiah. As a church family, we want to be really committed to that. The second center in the ancient world was Rome. I jumped ahead of myself. Rome is the capital of the world government. The Apostle Paul wants to go to Rome because that's the center of the world. And he wants to reach that city. It's already been reached with the gospel, but he wants to fuel what the Church of Rome is doing. And he wants them to become a base of operations, eventually for him to go as far as you can go in the then-known world to Spain, right on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, the very end of the Mediterranean Sea by the Straits of Gibraltar. That was called the Iberian Peninsula. Paul's making plans to take the gospel all the way over there. What is these little paragraph teaching? It's just saying we need to be strategically planning about how to take the gospel. What does that mean for Midlothian Bible Church? You need to be really praying. This year you've been involved in strategically working and planning to reach Armenia, Colombia. And joining with the body of Christ and several of our young people, several of our adults went down to Armenia, Colombia. And they talked to people on the street. Now they're making plans about strengthening the church. As a body of believers, you want to be involved in praying for that and supporting it because Midlothian Bible Church is a base of operations to take the gospel into all the world. The reason the Lord's blessed us over these 40 years is in the very beginning of our church, one of our major teachers, the ones that had the other Bible study, Ed and Corley Murray, when we were only a group of about 16, some of you have heard this history, but you need to be reminded of it. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says, we want you, Ed and Corley, to go and become part of a five-couple team to reach behind the Iron Curtain. And to reach people for Jesus. And we were saying back then, how in the world can you even get behind the Iron Curtain? But one of the campus crusade staff that's now called Crew had figured out how to get behind the Iron Curtain and how to use legitimate means to interact with people, to meet in homes, to start gathering. And I remember being in a meeting. We're saying, what in the world are we going to do, man? Ed and Corley, they thought they were going to be the ones that would found Midlothian Bible Church. And now they're gone. And Mary and I were here. See how the Holy Spirit works? And the Lord is blessed because we became a base of operations to reach into Eastern Europe. There's now like 1,500, 1,600 Eastern Europeans that flowed out of that team by the power of the Spirit. And now all of Campus Crusade's ministry in Eastern Europe is run by Eastern Europeans. And the walls come down. There's tremendous freedom. You say, well, what about right now? What are Ed and Corley doing right now? They've just been appointed to be the campus crusade directors for Bulgaria. They opened the door in Moldova. They molded the team in Moldova. Ed and Corley are incredibly gifted to get young team members to get along, to get them to work together, to keep them focused on getting the gospel and helping people to grow. The Bulgarian team really needed help from a mature leader. So now Ed and Corley are thrust into a brand new ministry, and they're leading the team in Bulgaria. And I want you to know that this morning as you sit there, you're a part of that. As I speak right now, really four hours different, Lee Mora is going to stand up in one of the biggest churches in Sao Paulo, and he's going to open up the book and do exactly what I'm doing. You all made that possible. You brought him to Midlothian, helped him learn English, sent him through Dallas Seminary, provided a place for Lee and Tekka to stay, ministered to their boys. 
When he went back, he taught in the seminary at Palabra de Vida, and then the Lord called him to become the assistant pastor of one of the largest churches in Sao Paulo, Brazil, a city of 17, 18 million people. You see how you become a base of operations. Us being a base of operations is just beginning because the same Holy Spirit that's been guiding us is continuing to guide us. So I want you, first of all, to ask yourself, are you involved in accomplishing that strategic planning to take the gospel in all the world? And it also relates right here at home. Like last week, I had Alistair come and share with you how he's reaching out in the business world. We want to pray that the Lord's going to raise up a lot of men and women to reach into the business world. Last night, I had a chance, at, at, even at a wedding, I have a chance to meet with insurance agents. And I meet with a whole bunch of younger guys that are now like 32. And I'm able to make Jesus real, even doing a wedding ceremony and talking about the power of Jesus to change lives. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will really work in those young people, those younger adults, and really push them to grab a hold and become a base of operations to reach all their friends for Jesus. Amen? So that's what I want you to be praying for. And I want you to be excited about that. You say, well, why should I do that? Because Jesus is alive. Everything else that your friends are living for are dead. And what you have in the next little vignette is a very exciting story. A very exciting story. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul is planning to go to Greece and then go to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. But then Luke said, meanwhile, back in Ephesus, Paul sends his two young colleagues away, but look what happened while he stayed in the city of Ephesus. It says about that time, verse 23, there arose a great disturbance about one of the ways you can get to heaven. Is that in your text? Everybody tell me, what does it say? How many ways? Okay, Kim just mentioned he got in trouble, was accused of being bigoted and narrow-minded. Listen, if there's one way to save your life, if there's only one way as a medical doctor for me to save your life, it's the only way there is. And all the other ways are going to kill you. Am I bigoted as a medical doctor but say, hey, listen, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I know you have a lot of different beliefs. I'm not going to tell you what's really true. You can do whatever you want to. Wrap yourself in buffalo robes and you can go to sweat lodges. You can do meditation techniques. You know, the radiation is the only thing that will really cure your cancer. But I don't want to hurt your feelings. So if you want to eat grapes till they're coming out of your ears, go ahead. That'll be great. How many want to go to a medical doctor that will tell you that? Okay, you all just laugh, but you live in a world right now where there's a tremendous resurgence of all the different ways. And you all are dead meat for it. And religiously and spiritually, we're just like the Ephesians. So we need to understand, it doesn't make any difference whether 99% of the people think we're bigoted. There is only one way. When people die, those that live in India don't see Krishna. Or Siva. They don't see Hindu gods. They see the one with nail print in his hand. He's the one that's going to decide. If you live in Japan in a resurgence of Buddhism, they're not going to see this Buddha. By the way, the real Buddha wasn't fat. He was in really good shape, so that's really weird. And there's a whole reason for that. But I really want you to know that it goes totally against the culture to believe that it's the way. When you are trying to get across to people that Jesus is the way, that he's the only historical figure that ever claimed to be God's son, that ever claimed he would rise again from dead, and he actually pulled it off, which is really an important thing, 
Whenever you believe that, whenever you share that, you got to be ready. It'll create a disturbance. And I want to tell you what the disturbance will be. It will be over money and it will be over politics because the power of changed lives in Jesus begin to influence power and money. You see, what are you talking about? Look what it says. It says there was a great disturbance of the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis. What he actually made was these little temples with Artemis in the center of this little temple, little silver, and also we've got a bunch of terracotta. They've lasted. The silver, I think they melted down, but we've got a bunch of these little terracotta temples, and then in the middle of the temple, there's a little fertility goddess, which represented Artemis or Diana. And they brought no little business for the craftsmen. So what is Demetrius worried about? Follow the money. Remember, stupid, it's about the economy. So Demetrius saying, hey, I'm making big bucks selling souvenirs at the temple of Artemis and all over the ancient world. And this is going to happen. He said, they called them together along with the workmen with related trades, all of those that were involved in making these little shrines of the temple with Artemis in it. He said, men, you know that we receive a good income from the business. He's honest at least. Hey, we're business people. We're making a lot of money. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So is the Apostle Paul's ministry having an impact? How did he do it? You say, Dave, how do we have an influence here in Midlothian? The Apostle Paul, it says he started in the synagogue and he taught daily and weekly in the Sabbath worship about the Messiah Jesus. Then they threw him out of there and he went to the school of Tyrannus. And for three years, he taught people. And then those people spread out. So we talked about having Bible studies in our home. You need to be praying, a base of operations right here. One of the ways to reach out all over this Asia is open up your home. Like we started our whole church family in the home. Now, instead of having two Bible studies that generate our church, we should have hundreds of Bible studies that are spreading, joining with other members of believers in Christ. That's a strategic planning. And what you want to do is you want to have your home Bible studies. You don't want them just to be your nice brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to have home Bible studies. Your unbelieving friends will come over. So, for example, Lane Merchimer is doing a ton of fantasy football. Oh, no, I can't believe it. Pastor Lane is idolatrous. And he's, no. His neighbors, the men around him that live around his house, they had never played fantasy football. So they have their league. You know what? They're all in Lane's house talking. That's how you reach people. That's how we built our church. That's a strategic plan. And that spreads like wildfire. And as it spreads, I've literally seen it in my own life. We started in Billy Holliman's house, who's right here, and we started Faith Bible Church. We started in Tommy and Reba's house, and that's the house next door to me, and we started Midlothian Bible Church. We started in some homes in Waxahachie, and we started Waxahachie Bible Church. We started in some other homes in Mansfield, joined the homes together, and we founded Mansfield Bible Church. We want that to continue, amen? And that's what we need to pray. And when that happens, the evil one attacks, and he's going to do it over the money. Christianity starts to really influence people's pocketbooks. And it says this. Demetrius is going to say, hey, we're losing money. Then he says this. Paul says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now, what do you think about a man that says 
that man-made gods are no gods at all. How do you respond to that statement? Demetrius's point, we got a problem here. This man is telling everybody that man-made gods are no gods at all. How many of you are on Demetrius' side? Man-made gods are gods. How many of you are on Paul's side? So this morning, you need to all ask yourself, am I living for things like you live for your iPad? Are you more devoted to your technical gadgets than we are to singing praise to Jesus? That's where the rubber meets the road for me. If you lost your Apple products, would your life end? If you lost your video games, oh, we say, oh no, I don't, we, we don't worship man-made things. Oh, yeah, we do. You're built for worship. It's a really strategic thing. If I give my devotion, my reverence, my praise to man-made things, is it going to be the truth? And what I want to tell you this morning, the argument of this passage is Demetrius is wrong. And I want you to see how stupid it is. How in the world could something that's going to give you life and vitality and meaning, how could anything man-made do that? What happens to all the men and women that you know? So, are they good gods? So that's the irony of this passage. Luke is writing this with his tongue in his cheek. He's very, he's very clever. And he has this man arguing persuasively. Man, we're ruining, we're losing our religion. Because everybody knows that Diana is man-made. And Paul's telling them that the God of all the heavens made heaven and earth. He made all this stuff, all the trees, all the gold, everything. And he can't be worshipped in temples built with hands. So temples aren't really that important. Powerful argument. Demetrius goes on. Point number one, Paul's wiping this out because he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Then he also says that there's a danger that not only our trade, which is the big issue, will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Are you uptight about Jesus losing his honor in our culture? I want you to realize your Savior is going to be just fine. A God's praise that depends upon what I do and the power that I use, in fact, this is real important. If you think, if you think that you need to prop Jesus up, you need to help him out because he's being forgotten and no one will listen, I got news for you. The living Jesus will just bust out somewhere else and in some other form as far as buildings and form that you use, and his message will explode because he's the true God. You don't defend You don't have to be scared and defend those gods that are really alive. But if you got to pretend God, then you're going to have to prop them up. That's the argument of this passage. You ever think how stupid it is? If if Diana and this Artemis god, this goddess, if she's really so powerful, then who's going to attack the Apostle Paul? Who's going to stop him? Do you have to have a riot? that violently tries to take out the child of God. Some of you are really uptight about Islam. Islam's not going to conquer the world. You say, how do you know that? Because when you have to kill people, you're done. When you need to take control of politics and make people believe 
The belief is death. I want you to listen really carefully because if I whomp you up, man, Christianity is going to die. Islam has taken over the world. What are we going to do? Boy, we need to have real power here. You know how you reach the world for Jesus and conquer Islam? This morning, you believe Jesus is the living Christ. You tell your friends about it in your homes. You live throughout all the marketplaces that you're a part of. And you know what you don't do? You don't scream against Islam. And you don't attack Muhammad. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because the Apostle Paul has already shown us how to do that. The Apostle Paul didn't live in the United States of America where over 90% of the people claim to be culturally Christian. He lived in the Roman Empire where they worshipped the emperor and they worshipped Artemis and Isis and Osiris. This little fledgling movement in the first century that just was birthed out of Judaism, it didn't have a chance. But you know what they didn't do? What Demetrius is saying was true. The business of selling little idols to Artemis was going downhill. But you know what? It didn't go downhill because the Apostle Paul organized a big media campaign against the theater and the worship of Artemis and against her temple. He didn't go to Demetrius' stand with signs and say, down with Artemis, down with Artemis, up with Jesus. That's power. And you'll win your crowd. You'll lose all the idolaters. The Apostle Paul, in 300 years after the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus, a man named Constantine, in order to rule the Roman Empire, he had to take the sign of the cross. You know how they did it? They went to the lions and they said, Lord, forgive them. They had gladiators cut them in half. And as the gladiators came with their sword, they said, I forgive you in Jesus' name. Masters would gather together with their servant slaves in the midst of the Colosseum, and they'd hug each other, and they would shout to the crowd, what an honor it is to die for Jesus. Did they use skill? The rest of the book of Acts is going to be how the Apostle Paul skillfully uses the political system, the courts, and legitimate law and order. But the Apostle Paul's never going to organize armed resistance. Some of you right now, your homes are like fortresses. What are you trusting in? What are you really going to do with all those weapons? Do you really want to kill all those? I'm not talking about legitimately defending yourself. But I want to ask you, what are you afraid of? What are you believing in? Who do you think needs to be defended? What does the living Jesus living in your heart, how does he influence people today? We're following a statement that says, pray for our enemies. Was Demetrius' charge true? Did the Apostle Paul bring power, physical power and violence against the temple of Artemis? No. He did something far more powerful. He told the story of the crucified Jesus everywhere he went. Will you? Will I? And will I believe that as I do it, it will change hearts?
A riot broke out in this town. Man, they just exploded. And it says right here in the next passage, that when they heard this, a great crowd shouting rose up, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city was in uproar. The people seized Paul's associates, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. They rushed into the theater. It's about 25,000 strong in the theater. And they grabbed some Jews in the passage. And they tried to put Alexander forward. When the people saw he was Jewish, they shouted him down. That was the anti-Semitism rising up. Then, as the crowd, for two hours, in response to that, they shouted, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Deanna of the Ephesians. I got news for you. All paganism can do, all false gods can do is shout. So you don't need to be afraid. You can shout for two hours, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. She isn't great. Jesus is. Paul wants to go in there. They stop him. The city manager gets up. And if you guys, if you want to know about politicians, they haven't changed in 2,000 years. The city clerk, every city has the one that writes everything down. The city clerk stands up, and what he says is, everyone knows that Diana is great. Throughout the world, everyone knows Artemis is great. So you need to stop shouting because it's a done deal. Artemis is great. What do you know? Is Artemis great? Most of you didn't even know about Artemis until you came this morning, unless you're a good Sunday school person that learned about it in a one in Sunday school. So the, the city politician says, hey, you don't need to be defensive because Artemis is great. The second thing they say, which is real important, the city manager, the city secretary of Ephesus is able to say, Paul didn't rob our temples, and he didn't blaspheme the name of Artemis. Now, I want you to know that Paul did say that idols, especially to people like you, that idols are false gods. What he didn't do in the city of Ephesus is go out by the theater and by the temple of Artemis. When they had their processions, he didn't go out and protest against them. He conquered Artemis by the power of the living Christ, by teaching, by proclaiming the gospel. We need to learn to do that. We need to learn how you really influence people. And what the secretary was saying was true. The apostle Paul hadn't gone in. By the way, the Ephesian temple to Artemis had millions and millions of dollars of gold in there. And later on, as I close this message, Christians did rob the temple. In fact, it was a Christian 400 years later that called for the final leveling of the temple of Artemis, and it was gone. But when the Christians seized political power and they started knocking temples down by force, it led to the world we have today. Rather than believers really bringing the living power of Christ, most of my unbelieving friends think Christianity is just a big power structure. It's about money. It's about politics. It's about influence. It's just like any other move because we start to think we can do it. What this message is saying today is we follow a living Lord Jesus Christ. The gates of hell won't prevail against them. So we need to be really careful that we don't use power that we don't just make it a political game, that we don't just make it about shouting, but instead, all of you leave this room and you go out there and live a changed life 
by the resurrection power of Jesus. You keep influencing your circle of influence. The honest of goodness truth, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, anything man-made that my friends live for is going to let them down. Did you hear what I just said? Anything your friends live for. If they live for drinking good beer, there's going to come a day where the good beer isn't enough. If they live for good sex, which is the fertility God is about, there's going to come a day where they have prostate cancer, and they're going to struggle with that. Or they're going to get diabetes, and they're not going to be able to function, and all the Viagra in the world isn't going to make it work. That's the truth. You need to rest on that. If you're a woman, if you think companionship is going to be the great deal, so yeah, you opt out of the husband you have now and choose a younger one that you think is really sensitive to you, there will come a day where none of that's going to work. Because all of us one day are going to be me and Jesus. And he is the one that can take you to the valley of the shadow of a death, and it will prove just to be a shadow. Because he takes you to live in a city more beautiful than Ephesus ever dreamed to be. You'll be in a temple that's more beautiful than anything Artemis ever came up with. And you are going to shout. You're going to shout, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory, dominion and power forever and ever and ever. Lord, help us to spread this good news, Lord. Help us to be delivered from false gods. I pray that you would deliver us from false means. Help us to really learn from the Apostle Paul and not to turn the way, following the path of Jesus, turning it into a political movement or a nationalistic movement or a power movement of any kind. I ask you, Lord, that the power would be from the power of your spirit, the power of your spirit to take out demonic attacks against us, the power of your spirit to conquer riots, the power of your spirit to help us in law courts. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use the message this morning to help me to turn away from false gods that can demand my attention and my heart and my devotion. And use this message, Lord, to help any of my brothers and sisters that are worshiping false gods, help them to see how foolish paganism is. It's stupid to give devotion to things our hands have made but it is eternally wise to pour out our shouts of praise to the living Christ to live forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.